on contact with Chris Hedges. Welcome to On Contact. Today we discuss the decline of the American empire with historian Alfred McCoy. That the United States might not win. So we're faced with a very different world. We, our intelligence community says our power is fading and a top think tank is saying if it comes to a military crunch, we could lose. The American empire is in irrevocable decline. The incessant and futile warfare, especially in the Middle East, has swollen the country's deficits and seen the country's infrastructure slip, neglected, and underfunded into decay. Global trade agreements have decimated the country's manufacturing base and left the working class in poverty. Strategic alliances, including with NATO, are weak or broken. Old allies in Europe, Latin America, Asia, and Africa are asserting their independence from Washington. In April 2015, the Department of Agriculture predicted that the U.S. economy would grow by nearly 50% over the next 15 years, while China's would expand by 300%, equaling or surpassing America's around 2030. In June, the Defense Department issued a sober report titled on risk assessment in a post-primacy world, finding that the U.S. military no longer enjoys an unassailable position versus state competitors and it can no longer automatically generate consistent and sustained local military superiority. Add to these factors climate change, the decline of technological innovation, and the shattering of the myth of America as a beacon of democracy and liberty to the rest of the world, and a virulent right-wing populism that threatens to trigger domestic racial violence and social unrest. And you have a witch's brew that could see the American empire collapse almost overnight. On Contact with Chris Hedges. I'm joined today by Alfred McCoy, who holds the Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His research has been focused on the emergence of the modern Philippines, the netherworld of covert operations, and the history of modern empires. The CIA attempted to block the publication of his first book, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia. He is also the author of Policing America's Empire, the United States and the Philippines, and the rise of the surveillance state. His latest book is In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. I want to begin, as you do in your book, wonderful book, with Halford McKinder and why uh, he's so important in terms of explaining our past, and I think you would argue explaining the three or four decades that are to come. Sure. In a very cold, Winter's night in January 1904 in London, Sir Halford Mackinder gave a single lecture before the Royal Geographical Society entitled The World Island, The Geographical Pivot of History. And what he said was several things. First of all, he said that Europe, Asia, and Africa were not three separate continents. But when you tilted the globe a certain way, what you saw was a unitary landmass. And he said that the control over this landmass was central to the rise and fall of empires. So in the 16th century, the Europeans had learned how to sail around that landmass. That gave them a strategic advantage over the landsmen, the great hordes, the Mongols, the Manchus, the Turks, the Arabs, that had pounded at the gates of Europe. And that dominion led to the rise of the European empires. And then he said, now, he said, the world is changing. And what he was referring to in 1904, of course, was the Trans-Siberian Railway, the first railroad 
was crawling its way across the Eurasian landmass, actually unifying what were, were really a single landmass, although long seen as two separate continents just by distance, uh, and was crawling its way to Vladivostok. And uh, Halford McKinder said that, that now well, we would see the, the first power that managed to mobilize the resources from the great heartland of the world island, basically central Russia, uh, and the steppes, uh, the Gobi Desert and all the rest, that would be the source of the rise of a new world empire. Now in that lecture, Sir Alfred McKinder did two things. First of all, he was making a statement about changes in the, in, the, in the array of power in the world, but he did something more fundamentally in that lecture. He invented in that single lecture the science, the study of geopolitics. That's to say, the merging of all the forces of geography, economy, human society into geographical blocks that enables you to understand geopolitical power. In our own day, this is very important because China has, over the last 10 years, begun to realize Sir Halford Mackinder's vision. They have spent a trillion dollars, starting roughly in 2007, building an elaborate network of rails, gas pipelines, oil pipelines, all the way across Eurasia. Moreover, they've established the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank to overlay that world island with a financial superstructure. They have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to, to match it with diplomacy. And then with, with, the, with this sort of geographical substrate of Chinese power, that if that infrastructure works, it will naturally draw global commerce, trade, development, finance towards China. China will become the epicenter of this world island. And at the same time, of course, and much of your book is really dealing with this, we are watching the decline of the American empire. Uh, you talk about the Athenian, you compare it to past empires. Uh, so we have the, the rise of China. You actually use a figure 2030 by which you think uh, if we don't live in a multipolar world, uh, certainly the American empire will be significantly diminished uh, and the Chinese, uh, you know, may be dominant. But talk about what's happened to the United States and how we have uh, in many ways replicated uh, the failings of past empires. Sure. Well, another very well-known British imperial historian, John Darwin of Oxford University, wrote a book in which he described a thousand years of imperial contestation wars uh, on the Eurasian landmass. And he says in this book, the United States became the most prosperous, the most powerful empire in the history of the world because it was the first empire to control what he called the axial ends of Eurasia, okay? And what he's referring to is this. At the end of World War II, the United States formed the NATO alliance and we got one axial end in the west. And then along the Pacific littoral, a chain of islands running from Japan through South Korea, the Philippines to Australia, through four mutual defense pacts, we got another axial end. And then we, over, we, we link these axial ends of the Eurasian landmass with veritable circles of steel starting with mutual defense pacts, the NATO alliance, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. Then we had Navy fleets, the Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean, the Seventh Fleet in the Pacific, and then later the Fifth Fleet uh, in, in the Persian Gulf at Bahrain. And most recently, over the last 10 years, we've laid down the last circle of steel linking these two great axial points, 60 drone bases stretching from Sicily to Guam. And uh, what this has been so fundamental to U.S. geopolitical power that although it's American leaders who built this apparatus back in the 1950s, our leaders have forgotten its centrality. That it, Not they, Obama, though. You, no. you, you really 
I'm no fan of empire, uh, but as an architect of empire, you rate him very highly with Brzezinski and Elijah Root. Uh, uh, I surveyed, and others can disagree, American political history over the past 120, 30 years, and I came to the conclusion that although geopolitics, when you say it, it sounds easy, but the application, the practice of it is very difficult for leaders. And Obama is one of three American leaders who really understood geopolitics. And he came up with a bold geopolitical vision, completely unappreciated, for stopping the Chinese challenge. And his was a very simple two-part strategy. First, uh, he understood that China was laying down this massive infrastructure to unify the Eurasian landmass economically. So he came up with a bold countervailing strategy in two trade pacts, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which linked a dozen nations who control 40% of world trade. And then he uh, had another trade pact, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, that was going to capture another 20% of world trade in Western Europe. And through these two trade pacts, he would drain the lifeblood of commerce out of that world island, away from China, across the Atlantic, across the Pacific, to the United States. And the other part he realized, too, was he argued that with the boom of fracking in the United States, that we no longer needed Middle Eastern oil, our strategic interests there were no longer significant. He began pulling surplus forces out of the Middle East, transferring to rebuild America's position at that axial end of the region. But you argue in the book that, that he just couldn't escape from that quagmire, uh, that much of these bases, as I think it is a Darwin in Australia, are mostly symbolic. Uh, the, the relationship with the Philippines uh, has declined significantly. And then, most importantly, you write uh, about these uh, trade pacts uh, designed, you say, to supersede the sovereign authority of courts and legislatures. The TP, TTP and TTIP became symbols of a globalization gone too far. Obama's promotion of these treaties coincided with a growing nativist reaction to globalization across Europe, an increasing number of voters supported hyper-nationalist parties that included, and you list them. And, and so like Brzezinski, there were unforeseen consequences. Uh, of course, he was trying to bring down the Soviet empire by expanding Islamic jihadism in Central Asia. Um, there are unforeseen consequences that really managed to neuter this effort, didn't it? Indeed. That's the tragedy, if you will, of these geopolitical geniuses. Uh, in, in the kind of ether of geopolitics, where they abstract human society to these kind of counters and they play the, the board like, like a risk game, okay? Uh, they forget about the complex human equation. So in Brzezinski's case, it was a brilliant geopolitical move. Brzezinski, by the way, is a self-conscious student of Mackinder. He, he writes about Mackinder, he applies Mackinder. And his was a bold geopolitical move. What he did was, he used radical Islam, drove it like a knife, like a wedge into the heart of the, the world island, Soviet Central Asia. And then he sheared away Eastern Europe, liberated the Eastern Europe. By European. weakening the Soviet right. Empire. Exactly. It was a bold geopolitical strike through Soviet Central right. Asia. Okay. And 3,000 miles to the west, you liberate Eastern Europe. And he was asked in, a, in an interview in a French publication in the 1990s, what about Osama bin Laden? What about Islamic terrorism? Right. And he said, and it's wonderfully well, he said, he said, look, what is more important in the history of the world, the liberation of Eastern Europe or a few stirred up Muslims? We'll come back to that. When we come back, we'll hear more from Professor Alfred McCoy.
known in your city and your streets. Never back down like Tyrell, and the truth is what you seek. To analyze, investigate from the bottom to the top. You speak your mind like Sean Stone, whether they like it or not. I got Tabitha, Miss Wallace, with the wisdom and the pearl. Between the outrage and the evidence, what's going on in this world? Watching the hearts, watching the hearts, watching the hearts. Listen when they talk. I'm a trial lawyer. I've spent countless hours pouring through documents that tell the story about the ugliest side of corporate America. Corporate media refuses to talk about these issues. The conduct by this company was deplorable. I'm going to paint a clear picture about how disturbing, how corrupt corporate conduct has become in modern America. These are stories that no one else can tell. I'm Mike Papantonio, host of America's Lawyer. Question more. Hey guys, I made a professional-ish PowerPoint to show you how RT America fits into the greater media landscape. RT is not alt-left or alt-right, but we are a solid alternative to the bullshit. We don't skew liberal or conservative, and as you can see from this bar graph, we don't skew the facts either. Talking head lefties, talking head righties. Oh, there you go, above it all. So look out world, RT America is in the spotlight now. And frankly, I have no idea how to classify us. That actually took me way more time than I care to admit. On Contact with Chris Hedges. Welcome back to On Contact. Let's continue our conversation with Professor Alfred McCoy, author of In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. Let's go back to Obama and, and this failure. You're, you're quite laudatory about his conceptual prowess, uh, but it, it hasn't worked. No, because... The, the, the kind of brilliant manipulation of these abstractions, you know, moving the, the, the pieces about the chessboard that Obama did so skillfully as a geopolitical genius, uh, ran into the human equation. These elaborate trade pacts that were designed before President Trump canceled them to shift 60% of the world's trade towards the United States across the Atlantic Pacific ran into uh, enormous geopolitical, enormous international opposition, the rise of populism. Sectors of societies around the globe, uh, regional pockets, uh, poor working class people that hadn't prospered in, in, the, in the globalization of trade, manufacturing, commerce, they grew angry. They began mobilizing around the world as they did in the United States. And Obama simply overlooked this fundamental political fact. And so within his own party, there was a revolt, and he might have gotten it through had the old sort of Democratic, liberal, Republican, mainstream politician that was always pro-trade, always pro-NAFTA, pro-CAFTA, any kind of international trade pact, you get that coalition to pass it. Well, that ended, okay? Uh, his own party rebelled, and when President Trump came into office, the first thing he did was to cancel the Trans-Pacific Partnership, even though the Prime Minister of Japan, Prime Minister Abe, virtually begged him over the phone and in person at Trump Tower not to do it, to keep that pact. Because Prime Minister Abe said, China's got a 16-nation regional cooperation trade pact. If you don't take the trade, if we don't capture the trade, China will. But so strong was the populist opposition to these trade treaties, to international trade. Well, because they devastated the American working class. And, you know, and regions in the And regions. Yeah. I want to talk about what you call the demise of the United States as the preeminent global power. You write it could come far more quickly than anyone imagines. You actually, at the end of the book, talk about 
you know, various kinds of scenarios. Why is the American empire so fragile at this moment? Because all empires are fragile. At the moment of their ascent, when their legions are marching, they blacken the skies with their aircraft, their ships thunder off the coast, they march across continents, sweeping petty states before them. They seem so unstoppable, so mighty, so eternal. But actually, unlike the organic resources of an, even a modest-sized nation-state, whose defense and economy and state operations rise organically from the people and the land, these empires are operating overseas, far from home. They're extraordinary costs. They're incredibly jury-rigged, fragile apparatuses. So they look mighty at the peak of their power, but once they begin to fall apart, there's kind of a cascading effect. They fall apart with an unholy speed. Well, you, call, you talk about when, when revenues shrink, as our revenues are shrinking, you actually use the word brittle. Uh, and you say, consider the collapse of the Soviet sphere as its command economy imploded, or recall the rapid dissolution of the British Empire after World War II as London faced an irresolvable conflict between domestic recovery and its imperial commitments, but also the currency, the reserve currency, shifted from the pound to the dollar, right. which devastated the British economy, made the, the maintenance of empire almost impossible. And um, I, I think in the book you say that it is probably at some point inevitable that the dollar is no longer the reserve currency which uh, can deflate empire very swiftly. All of these things come together. Let's, let's look at the, the British collapse, which happened all of it. Uh, okay. Britain was actually very skillful in managing its imperial retreat. Uh, they were pulling back east of Suez systematically. But this unleashed profound psychological pressures among the British conservatives. Uh, Harold Macmillan, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir Anthony Eden, the Prime Minister, and they reacted when Egypt nationalized the Suez Canal. They lost it. They became absolutely irrational. They, 1956. Right. They launched this massive right. military operation with the Israelis and the French. Complete failure. Brilliant military diplomatic disaster. And suddenly, the, the, the International Monetary Fund had to do its first currency bailout for the British pound. They're, they couldn't sustain the operation. The pound was collapsing. They'd alienated the United States. They concealed the entire operation from the Eisenhower administration. Their closest ally was angry with them. And suddenly, in, in, a, in one, what's called a micro-military operation, the Brit Britain, which had a good economy, which had considerable national prestige, had much of its empire in place, had preserved its key investments in that empire, suddenly it was the, the mighty lion was kind of like a, a toothless circus tiger that would would, would jump whenever America cracked the whip, okay? And so... Well, was Eisenhower who forced them to withdraw? Yeah, forced them to withdraw, and the IMF had to bail out the pound, and the Britain... And, and you liken that moment in history to what you call George W. Bush's rash invasion of Iraq. Uh, and in that year, you call it the start of America's downfall. Right, I think we're having multi-stage. That was the start. What I see now under the Trump administration actually is a, almost a malign design to knock down the pillars that have sustained American power for the past 70 years. When President Trump went to Europe and he spoke before NATO, he refers to, refused to reaffirm the common defense principle. Okay, and if you look at the, the, the nature of our relationship with those four nations from Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and Australia, okay, our relations with each of those is waning very fast, is much weaker than when Trump came into office. 
The only question, I think, under the Trump administration is whether or not we're going to have a, a micro-military operation. Kind Explain of a, what that is. That's a term you use at the end of the book. Explain sure. what that is. Micro-militarism is a term divide by, devised by historians that say that, that when empires are, are in their ascent, their use of military power is rational, almost unstoppable. But when they begin to decline, when this process of collapse, this cascading... Can I just interrupt in this from the book, but also restrained? The use of military yeah. power is is not something that they use, uh, you know, without careful careful calculation. Yeah, everything seems to work on the ascent. Every move seems a masterstroke. Leaderships always seem brilliant. Generals are victorious. It, it all works. And then in the wind down, as everything is this cascading collapse proceeds, all of that reverses itself. And so, in the psychological pressures, uh, uh, as power fades and people suffer a loss of international prestige. People also suffer a loss of, of confidence internally because they've identified themselves as Americans or British with this power. They become irrational and they lunge and they come up with the idea that a, a military masterstroke will suddenly reverse this decline of power and recover all that power. I think the George W. Bush administration's plunge in the Middle East in the Iraq war was a classic instance of micromilitarism. We'll only be able to understand the full impact of that a decade or two from now. But I think in retrospect, we'll look back and see. You make an interesting point. You say that every sustainable modern empire has had some source of universal appeal for its foreign subjects. Spain offered Christianity, uh, Britain free markets and fair play, the United States democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. But once that evaporates, and you cite Abu Ghraib, the, the kind of Guantanamo, as a loss of kind of that mystique. Um, you argue that China probably doesn't have that mystique, which will hurt it in terms of trying to become an empire. Um, why is that important? Uh, the argument's been made by people like Joseph and I of Harvard that, that the hard power of battleships and aircraft and dominant reserve currency and all the rest of it the diplomacies, the embassies, has to be matched by soft power, a kind of salve to ease the, the pain of being dominated by a, an overweening, overarching global power. Uh, and America, Britain had its soft power in its day. I mean, think about it. Uh, sports in a, are, are virtually a British invention. Cricket, rugby, uh, I mean, we don't pay much attention, but cricket is an obsession in South Asia. Uh, and the, the BBC, the British language itself, British literature, the Anglican religion, Britain had much to offer the world that, that, that survived. The biggest part of the England church is in Africa today. Uh, the BBC is still a global broadcasting empire and sets a world standard for news and objectivity. The United States in its day, we had our sports, basketball, baseball. We had the Hollywood movies. There is no more powerful soft power than the Hollywood film industry. And we also stood for principles. And this is one of the defining, def, def, defining aspects of America's era in global dominion. We used our moment of peak of power right after World War II to preside over the construction of the international order, uh, the United Nations, the General Agreement on Trades and Tariffs, which is the precursor to the World Trade Organization, uh, the, Woods. That, right, uh, the IMF, the World wow. Bank, the Nuremberg Tribunal, the Tokyo Tribunal. We just didn't take the Nazi and Japanese leaders out and shoot them or throw them in a prison camp. We put them on trial and we held them up to international standards. And we stood for the rule of law. We inbuilt within the UN the international court. All right, all of that was the, the, the liberal apparatus of American global power. 
And that's been part of the reason we're so strong. Because Although much of it, as you point out, was very hypocritical in terms you write a lot about the covert operations that overthrew democratically elected governments in Iran and Guatemala. But we just have a couple minutes, so I want to end, which is the last part of your book. You talk about the way things could unravel. Um, and let's just end by your projection. And you actually use the, the year 2030 by which you think it's terminal? Well, first of all, in uh, the National Intelligence Council, which is the supreme analytic body of the United States, does future projections. And they did one in 2012 that said there's an historic shift taking place. The world economy, for the first time since 1750, is shifting from the West, as to say, Europe and the United States to the East. And this means that the United States, even its military power, will no longer guarantee its predominance. Just last year, the RAND Corporation, which is probably the best connected think tank uh, in Washington, D.C. They're based in Santa Monica, California, of course. They did a study called War with China, and they came to a conclusion after arraying all the variables that the United States might not win. So we're faced with a very different world. We, our intelligence community says our power is fading, and a top think tank is saying if it comes to a military crunch, we could lose. Now, this means a, a number of possibilities. First of all, one is the micromilitarism. We plunge into some place. Could be right. Korea. We overplay our hand. And we show that our anti-missile missiles can't knock out the North Korean missiles. Suddenly, Japan, South Korea turn away from us. Something like that. It could be a confrontation in the South China Sea with the Chinese Navy. We think we might win. They beat us at the game. Something small. Or it could be something like World War III with China. Now, that Rand Corporation of War with China uh, sort of arrayed the forces across the board, but they didn't war game it. They didn't look at what might happen. I think what might happen is China is the weaker power, has the asymmetric power of weakness. We have to defend across the board. They can figure out what our weakness is and attack that weakness. And China's supercomputers, it's, uh, it's, it's super fast computers. They have more of them and they're faster than America's computers. This means that they can crack codes faster than we can counter their codes. So. I see a war with China, computers, satellite warfare, space warfare, aerospace warfare, that China may well win. Great. Thank you. That was Professor Alfred McCoy, author of In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. We focus our frustrations, collective humiliation and anger at a time of imperial decline on the symptoms of decay, not the systematic causes of decay. We rail against Muslims, immigrants, the threat to gun ownership, abortion, or a myriad of other social or tangential issues that mask the darker reality before us. The good, unionized jobs are not coming back. Wages will continue to stagnate or decline. Our infrastructure, including our system of public education, will slip ever deeper into obsolescence. We can no longer afford to maintain our empire. Climate change will increase meaning the destruction we have seen in Houston, Florida, and Puerto Rico will ravage the landscape. The dollar once reigning supreme as the world's reserve currency, making possible our vast military reach across the globe, will eventually be replaced, plunging us into a depression. And rising up from the decline, as we have seen with Donald Trump, will be demagogues ready to exploit these frustrations to implant a dystopian police state. Thank you for watching. You can find us on rt.com slash on contact. I'll see you next week.